Welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. Hey, Zine. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast, the show that amplifies Wisconsin music and beyond, all while exploring the vibrant music scene. I'm your host, Zach Fell, and today we're diving into the heart of it all. This is the third episode of the fourth season, and we've got something special in store. We're joined by a remarkable guest who's making waves in the world of music production, Chris Mara of the renowned recording studio, 1979 in Nashville. Chris, originally from Northern Wisconsin, is here to share his passion for analog recording and the music industry. Stay tuned as we explore his journey, insights, and the magic of retro analog sound. Welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. This week we have Chris Mara. He's an original Wisconsinite, but now lives down in Nashville. He owns two companies. One is Mara Machines, which uh, he works on post-MCI Sony analog machines from the smallest, I think, quarter inch all the way up to two inch machines. And he also has his own recording studio down there called Welcome to 1979. So welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast, Chris Mara. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate that. Great to have you on. So first of all, first question I ask is your music origin story. How did you get into music? Is your family a big music, big into music? You know, all that kind of stuff that kind of led you to where you are today. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from a really small town in Wisconsin, north of Eau Claire, about 800 people. And my family isn't musical, but there was always music on. Like, I, I don't remember a lot of music stuff but then when i started listening to the eagles i knew every word of every song so i it had to have been played my yeah. old child right but i remember you know i mean this was in the what early 90s i was a kid uh you know early teenager and i'm listening to the radio and i and it things like the eagles sound like they're in the radio station and yeah. i and i wasn't sure like how that happened and I was curious as how music was made and all this kind of stuff. And I was starting to buy um, CDs and cassettes and stuff and, and just wanted to learn about how records are made, you know, that kind of got you started into listening, not only just to music as an enjoyment, but how it all kind of got put together. Right. Yeah. And my first entrance into the music industry was through like live sound, like doing sound for bands and bars, which was immensely fun. It was a lot of work and, and it was really fun to just like roll into a, a bar and set up a sound system. And then an hour later, there's music coming out of speakers. You know what I mean? And that yeah. was so fun. And I'm out, I always like plugging this into that and, and oh, this cable broke or, you know, and you're trying to upgrade your system and, and all of that. So my, my idea was to, to go to school to learn more about live sound. Um, but then there weren't there weren't colleges for that. There was really just starting to get some colleges for recording. So I went to a recording school in Minneapolis, thinking I'll take what I learn about compressors and gates and all that in a studio and just apply it to live sound. Okay. And then I fell in love with being in the studio. It was like <laughs> it's like wow! I load the truck full of gear, drive an hour set it all up so i can do an hour of mixing which is what i can do in a studio and all this stuff's here all the time <laughs> you know already I mean? yeah already set already up here yeah. yeah so uh yeah and then and then i moved to nashville because you know wisconsin and minnesota is cold 
and there's not <laughs> much that much industry there you know it's like i i just needed to go where it was happening you know now when you were starting doing live music that's had to be at least what 20 25 years ago that was 1992 i was still in high school doing some live sound 93 yeah yeah okay so and technology has grown so much since those days it's like you can almost basically bring your studio to a live gig and run it nowadays with you know, the smaller the machines are and the more, you know, space they can hold and how many tracks you can record and how many mic pre's are built into these machines now. It's just nuts. Dude, it's, it's, you know, it's so affordable now. It's such a great time to make music. Like I, I, I DJed my sister-in-law's wedding a few years ago and I just grabbed like a couple Mackie powered speakers and a couple microphones. Right. And I was dumb. Exactly. And it was better than what I had. Way back when, it took a whole trailer full. Right, you know? exactly. So, yeah, I love it. So there's less and less excuses for not being able to do it, you know? Right. Which kind of brings to the question of, is digital getting good enough that, I know you run this analog machine business where you rebuild these MCI machines, um, but with digital getting so good, what's the reason to continue using these type of machines? Yeah, that's a great question. And and it used to keep me up at night. It's like, because I've, I've been restoring and selling these analog tape machines for about 15 or 16 years. And, you know, every couple of years, it's like, maybe this is our last year because plugins came out or whatever. And it seems, well, a couple of things. I've been looking at other companies like Mar Machines that do different things, vintage cars is a great example film cameras hell there's even a a blacksmith school in indiana do you know what i mean there's no reason for those things to exist except people want them and it occurred to me that the more digital advances the more relevant tape machines are like the more computer aided systems in cars the more people want to drive a 65 mustang do you know what i mean it's yeah. just it's just give and take and it's not about the sound so much of a tape machine it's about the experience of using it and say you used it and say that you know how to use it you know um so yeah and like dave durr who who designed and owns the distressor which is a very popular compressor yeah uh, I'm, I'm friends with him and he's been a really really great sounding board for me because when when plugins started coming out for the distressor i was like dave How's the hardware business? How are you still selling the rack units thinking, you know, is my business going to tank because I don't have a plug-in? And he says, man, it, it keeps them strong because people can buy the plug-in for whatever it is, 50 or 100 bucks. And people will just kind of know that the hardware unit is going to be better. So they'll throw 50 bucks at the plug-in, love it, and go buy the hardware. And I think the same for, for tape machines. People can get a plug-in go, this does sound good. The hardware must be way better, and I'll go buy a machine from me. Who's making tape these days? There can't be that many. I mean, there used to be multiple businesses, you know, back in the day that made tapes, you know, Sony, 3M, um, Ampex, you know, and the like. So who's doing it nowadays? Yeah, there used to be a lot of them, and 3M was right in Minneapolis making tape, which I thought is awesome. Um, there's two companies now. One is called ATR, which is made in York, Pennsylvania. And the other one is called 
recording the masters and that's made in france okay and i think there's a third but i i, I was just doing some research yesterday it looks like they're rebranding the recording the masters i'm not sure it was called oh, i forgot i'm so bad with names it, i think i saw the tab open it was called burlington recording but it so maybe three okay yeah but plenty for the for what we need right so yeah. if these companies somehow go out of business then you're kind of out of business aren't you potentially yeah i think i think what would happen there is there you can reuse the older tape that market would kind of skyrocket and um a good part of our sales now are are um archival houses so you would always need to be selling some machines to people that need to archive tapes that were recorded in the 50s 60s 70s that kind of thing so uh, but yeah it, it would uh it would definitely impact my business for sure right yeah so would you ever consider making your own tape no <laughs> I, would, I hear that it's probably a, a, a very high skilled um type of company out there that has to be able to do that yeah atr uh we're really good friends with them betty's the owner and i've been out there a few times and it you know anything that looks simple is absolutely not simple they're so good at it they make it look easy yeah and i'm i'm fooled into that so <laughs> that's good that's good yeah as a studio engineer uh business owner i got four things here i'd like to talk about what you had would have advice on and that is what advice, first of all, do you have for musicians going into a studio? What should they prepare for? What things should they, I know you can't prepare for everything, but what are kind of some of the solid things that they should be aware of before they step into a studio or even think about calling a studio to get in and re start recording? Now, those are great questions. And, and I talk a lot with bands because that's, I'm still a kid at heart and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and the welcome to 1979 is a huge studio it's one of the it's one of nashville's biggest and we have independent bands in there all the time and i love it that's a lot of questions so first and foremost i hear a lot of horror stories from bands that they met their engineer and and they didn't get along or they were told to record a different way than they wanted to so just i think first and foremost just communicate say hey here is our band here are some live videos of us you know how how does how do you record bands like this in your studio and then you know what's going on because a lot of bands go into smaller studios or whatever or big studios doesn't matter and the engineer kind of deconstructs how they play their music to to record it quote-unquote better in a way that doesn't really matter like let's do drums first and then bass and then you know or or whatever and it's just good to know who you're working with and and not not what they've done that doesn't really matter it's how they do it and to make sure that makes sense to you and that you're going to be comfortable and confident when you're doing it um and and i'm a big proponent to say okay we're gonna do this on this day and then what's the next day and what's the next day so it's not every day what's next what's next you just need to know the process excellent so kind of being organized and kind of knowing um what steps you're going to be taking so you're not all over the place is one of the best things to do when you walk into a recording studio yeah and, and take a tour of it physically if you can't 
Um, I mean, I love giving tours just to see how it works. Talk about how you want to record. And if you can't find a video tour of the studio online um, and all that kind of stuff, it's just, it's more about, cause it's your money, right? And right. it's your record. The next day that engineer is going to be working on somebody else's record and you have to go out and promote yourself based on what you did that day. So understand that. And I mean this in a polite way, but understand that they're working for you. Right. Right. And, and, and speak up and, you know, ask questions. And if you don't like the way something sounds, say, Hey, can we change that? You know, exactly. Yeah. Cause you know, one of the things when I started getting into this and, um, one of the things my father told me is like, don't leave the studio unless you think you're going to be happy with it 20 years down the road. So if there's yeah. something that needs to be fixed, then fix it there. Don't, you know, think about 20 years down the road. I should have done this, should have done this at the recording studio. Yeah. And if you get a good overview of how the whole day or days will unfold, you can make a better educated decision. Right. Right. Like, you know, a lot of times I talk to Ben and they're like, oh man, your studio is expensive. And it's like, well, it isn't, it isn't like we can record everyone at the same time with amps in different rooms. So we can record five or six songs in a day and then do just a few overdubs the next day. And in a smaller space, you'd have to do drums for a day or two and then guitars for a couple of days. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it takes longer and ends up costing the same. And what kind of results do you get? You know, right. And if, if I don't care what decision you make, as long as you understand and, and make an educated decision. That's all. Gotcha. And so, uh, welcome to 1979. When did the doors open for that? When did you guys start that? 15 years ago. So it was 15 years. Okay. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, uh, for up and coming recording engineers, what advice do you have for them? Oh, that's yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I would, and I'm always self-reflective. It's like, okay, I don't want to give advice that works for me and is irrelevant. Right. Right. But, and I study this one, I think is still relevant is it's so easy to have a home set up now. And I think a lot of people kind of overuse it and that's not saying it's a self-serving statement, but this is true. Okay. What I did is, is I went out and found bands and I'm like, Hey, look, if you want a good recording, let's go into the studio, rent it for a couple days. I'll work for less. I'll even work for free those couple days. So I can do overdubs in my recording space that are going to sound great. I've got these great tracks, these great mics for a day or two of studio time because then I can make, I can overdub on stuff that sounds good, mix it really well. And then I'm going to get more gigs based on what I did instead of trying to do everything in the space you have. And you know what I mean? you just, just kind of take the ego out of it and say, where can I be involved in this project? and go there right i don't have right. i mean i i don't use my studio for every project you know so okay so yeah. do you have a home studio or do you just are you living close to the studio that you run your business through um i've never had a home studio when when i started it was not financially it, like we talked about earlier it wasn't cheap yeah so i always looked at what I would do back then, back then, studios had a big tracking room. They had a small overdub room. They had a small mix room. And I would use the rooms I needed 
depending on what I was doing to save money. Right. Okay. Um, but that, that now applies to home studio stuff, you know? Okay. So yeah. cool. Now, um, for those that are getting into the business side of music, what are some of the things that you've learned as a business owner that might be helpful for those out there thinking about doing kind of the same thing you're doing with running their own studio or something else in the business of music? Man, I think I've kind of backed into the business side of I've become a business owner through wanting to do music. Um, if I was to do it again, I would, I would take a, 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 like a small business course or something to understand basics. Cause when I am in meetings, <laughs> sometimes higher level stuff, I I'm like, I don't know what that acronym is. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what does that mean? You know? Right. Yeah. Um, and luckily I don't, I don't care. I just ask. It's like, Hey, what does that mean? Right. Yeah. And there's basic concepts that can help you succeed. But, but luckily my Midwestern, um, like uh, what do you call it financially conservative upbringing is just save your money live below your means you know like on the studio side there's gear i could buy and go in debt and think i'm going to get more work because i have it and that just doesn't exist there's very few pieces of gear you can buy that will actually get you more work yes the collection gets you more work and gets you more projects but you know um, you can't buy a microphone and people book your studio because you have the microphone. Right. And if people are booking your studio because you have the, you know, like the Neves and the APIs and so, I mean, granted, those are great, you know, equipment, but if they're buying just because of the name, then they're not buying, they're not purchasing your services for the right reasons, I think. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if they're, then they're a fair weather fan. Right. Yeah. Right. And, like our, we have a whole mastering department. I've got two engineers in there. We have equipment, but we don't even we don't even publish what equipment we use on our website for mastering. It's like you want us to master? Do you want it to be good or not? It doesn't. Right. The tools we use are are part of it, you know. So. And then, kind of like a follow up to all of this is like following your aspirations. Just where there's, I mean, obviously it's it's like a roller coaster. There's ups and downs, you know, hills and valleys through you know the whole process. Is it worth it? Do you find it's worth following your aspirations or there's some days where it's just like, man, I should have done something else. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. I, you know, um, you can get kind of wrapped up in your own world and think, you know, it's, it's not going well or you're right. Your life sucks or whatever. And then, you know, you see somebody actually works for a living and you're like, oh man, you know, I've got it pretty good. So, um, it's definitely worth it. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, I mean the only, the only, yeah, I wouldn't do anything different. Okay. I think I would, I just, I could learn a little faster sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> now, but yeah. Yeah. So obviously you're not doing this all by yourself. You've had help over the years. So people that are getting into the business side of music, if you're trying to do this all by yourself, it's probably not the best path to take. Right. And I've done, I've, I've had a nice arc. So I think I can talk intelligently about all those different aspects. Right. Yeah. I, I used to be, I used to be the only person I emailed the bands. I met with the bands. I got the gigs, 
I booked the studios we're in. I recorded the project. I sent him an invoice at the end, <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then I had a studio and I would do the setups and I would clean the studio and fix the toilets, which I still do. And, and then build the bands. And, and then I started hiring a studio manager and he or she would book the bands and that has its, you know, nuances too. And, and now I'm in a different situation where I'm actually the studio manager and. Um, I book other engineers on projects and I book myself on projects that people request me. So I'm kind of in this, you know, engineer owner operator zone. Um, but nobody, okay, not nobody, very, 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 very few people are going to care about what you do as much as you do. Yeah. It goes to bands too. Like, mm-hmm. It's always want to hire a manager or hire a promoter. It's like, if you get a really, really good manager who really has their head screwed on straight, you're going to be one fifth or one sixth of their, of their day. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Um, versus yourself. So learn it. Like, you know, I still, I hired someone to, to design our websites because she's awesome and I maintain them because. I can just jump in there and do it. I don't have to wait and all that. Right. Even as big as our businesses are, I do that, you know? Um, and then when you do delegate, which is something I've, I've really struggled with, you have to understand that it's not going to get done exactly how you want it done, period. And just accept it and and move on. So Right. And you know that you can trust them to get it as close as possible to how you want it to do, and that's that will work. Yeah, and and how they do it most of the time doesn't matter. Is that it's done right at the end and on time is what matters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, kind of switching gears here a little bit, let's kind of go back and talk about the machines you rebuild. How did you get into that? Man, it was a side hustle. I, I was a freelance recording engineer when I was at the first five years I was in Nashville, which meant that I didn't have a studio. I worked at other studios. I would assist engineers at different studios and my calendar had open days and I <laughs> needed money. So I picked up um, some tech work, uh, soldering and calibrating tape machines for a friend of mine uh, who I became friends with, I should say. I didn't know him then. And he sold equipment and I can, uh, he sold equipment and fixed tape machines. So I, Got in with him. His name is Randy Blevins, and I can sell stuff because I know how it works. People would call. He sold consoles, tape machines, outboard gear, microphones, and since I use them every day, I could say, "Oh yeah, this this microphone has you know all the polar patterns you need. It has this and that." And I was selling shit for him left and right, um, and then fixing tape machines. And I was just kind of really got good at it. And. And when I opened the studio, people were emailing me about restoring their machines. So I called Randy. I said, hey, you know, do you mind if I start doing this? I don't want to step on your toes. And he's like, no, don't worry about it. I, I still do consoles and all that. You can just start doing tape machines. No big deal. So um, I got into that and, and built a different business model than, than other people that do it. Um, uh, because if you're not different, you're the same. And then it comes down to price, right? Yeah. Um, so the business model we have at Mar Machines is we don't, we don't fix machines and, and the machines we sell are restored and they're all the same price, right? So if you want a 24 track, it's 
X amount of dollars is what we sell 24 tracks for. And I may make a little more money on one and, and not as much money on the next, but you have to kind of have that same price point versus other people that do it restore machine and each machine is its own price. So gotcha. So no matter no matter where you're starting with when you get the machine, it's gonna be the same price at the end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So listeners out there, if you got a really, really bad MCI machine out there, then uh Chris will I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Yep. Yeah, he'll buy it from you. <laughs> so he can rebuild it for you or sell it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been successful. We sell, we ship about 50 or 60 machines a year, which is a lot. And we've been doing that same number for seven years, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. But, that's but obviously that's, that's not your bread and butter or is it your bread and butter? It's about, I mean, it, it, I, I do four things besides engineering, um, the studio, mastering, MAR machines. And we also do, um, vinyl record electroplating, which is part of manufacturing. And the tape machines, it, it, they're all equal. They all make about the same amount of money. Oh, okay. Yeah. It holds its excellent. own for sure. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Now, one of the services you do is transferring analog information on the analog uh, tape to digital. So how does that, how does that work? Um, so analog tape has been around since what? Forties, maybe. Something I mean, like that, yeah. I it was 1950s. Yeah. So, and there was no other way to record, right? I mean, a popular way. To, but so there's a, a gazillion tapes out there. So we've positioned ourselves in the industry to let people know that we understand music. We understand analog tape and all of its different formulations and how to restore tape. And we have restored machines that will play these tapes properly. So, um, every, every day we, people send us tapes of all formats, quarter inch, half inch from the fifties, seventies, nineties, and we can restore it. Um, and we transfer that to, um, WAV files of all different sizes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we do, we do one-off stuff. Like you have an album you recorded in the nineties, you send us those four reels of tape, or we do huge um archive projects for estates of of songwriters or artists that are that'll be 70 reels of stuff right so okay yeah yeah so i have this thing i don't know if you can see it but i can tell you probably can't see it but this is august of 83 and these are the 30 ips which will not run on this because i think this is 15 old but right they, they haven't been played probably since 1983 they're there was a band my dad was in and he wants me to get that transferred to digital. So what would it, so what kind of price do people look at for doing those kind of transfers? Yeah. And again, I've learned that having easy to communicate pricing is really uh, the key, right? right? So just to back up. So you said 30 ips. Ips means inches per second. Yep. So the tape is traveling across the heads at 30 inches per second or 15 inches per second. So that tape, 1983, is probably Ampex 456 or uh, Scotch, which is 3M206, um, which are different formulations, right? Yeah. Um, and they require different um, methods to restore them so they'll play again. So you've had that in your closet you know, since 83, 
So it, it won't play right now. If you put it on your machine, it would gum up and stick to the heads and you would lose the fidelity on the machine. So, or on the tape. There and uh, no, that's on. No name yeah. on here at all. No, pla it's a plastic flange. Then we would smell it or look at it and we would know what it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. Tails out, master mixed reel, but yeah, it doesn't have the name of the tape on it at all. Yeah. So they probably bought that on a pancake and played it onto a plastic reel to save money. Gotcha. Uh, but that's just from, I, I know all of that by looking at it because we handle tapes all the time. Right. So we do a song. We do stereo formats um, for $25 a song and multi-track formats for $50 a song. And that includes um, tape restoration and banking. Okay. So really simple. So you as an artist can say, okay, I've got four reels of multi-track tape. That's 12 songs. I've got the two reels of mixed down. That's 12 songs. And you can do the math yourself and send us the tapes. So Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I don't know how many songs there are, but maybe we'll talk about that another time and see if we can get that set up and get that transferred. That'd be Love cool. To. Yeah. Awesome. Is there anything I haven't asked you yet that you want to kind of talk about before I let you go? Um, you know, I think what we should talk about is because of all these questions, and I get a lot of emails and always have about how things work. And we've over the course of our chat, we've talked about some technical stuff music stuff and some business stuff and one of my goals for having my own studio was to be able to do more community building okay as a result of that i mean from the get-go year one we started doing tape camps um in the spring and the fall where 10 people can come we spend all weekend talking about tape them using tape machines we bring a band in um the 10 people will record the band together all that kind of stuff and that's in the spring and the fall at our studio. And then in November every year, we host a big recording summit uh, at the studio. And there's about 100 people that are involved. 60 people attend, 40 panelists from all over the country come. And we do panels and listening parties and stuff. And the panels are on tech stuff, business stuff, and music stuff. You know, uh, and it's fascinating. Um, and I learn every year. And, and I would encourage anyone if you, if you're, if the best way to learn is to be there in person and get your hands dirty. And both of those events I talked about are, are geared just like that. Excellent. Yeah. You know, virtual, you know, like the stuff we're doing right now, you know, just having this conversation over zoom, you know, it's, it's a great thing. And I think I saw on your website that sometimes you do that with people that buy your machines and they need to make some adjustments and you can do that. But going down to these camps and just really getting immersed and learning, you know, all the different things that you can do and have your questions answered right away is, is better sometimes because you have that knowledge that you can carry with you. Yeah. And, you know, having a panel of four people talking, then you get four perspectives. You know, I'm, I'm hesitating a lot in our conversation because I want to just make sure I'm not telling you my narrow perspective. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Where can people contact you? Where can they, you know, find you online, social media or websites or things of that nature? Yeah, it's all, um, everything is at welcome to 1979. Um, our websites that.com Instagram is at welcome to 1979. Facebook, same, uh, Mar machines is marmachines.com. Uh, Instagram is Mar Machines and Facebook is Mar Machines. So, Excellent. Yeah. Well, Chris, 
it's been a pleasure talking to you, learning all this great information about being a studio engineer, business owner, you know, all these great things that you're doing. We didn't get to talk about the vinyl um, part of all right. it. Um, was there anything that you want to add to that before I let you go? Um, yeah, I, I just just to make it simple, if you're thinking about releasing your music on a vinyl record, just email me and I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. We do the first two steps of three steps of that. And uh, we work with great pressing plants here in the U.S. all the time. Um, so don't don't fool for the brokers that tell you they can press your records really fast because they get it done overseas. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think um, if you if you're a local band and you care about where your food comes from and you care about where you buy your guitar, then get your records pressed here in the States. So how many places in America are there that do this? About a dozen. Okay. Yeah. So yep. when we hear that it takes a year for a record to get released, is that still true? No, that's just starting to loosen up. There was a big backlog um, due to COVID, right? Everyone wanted to get their records pressed on their on their web store because they couldn't tour. Now I think everything's back down to four or six weeks. Oh, great. Weeks. So yeah. yep. So people out there, if you're interested in getting your, your music pressed on vinyl, you heard it here. It takes about four to six weeks once once everything's ready to go, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the Wisconsin Music Podcast. I know the listeners have enjoyed will be enjoying this conversation once this goes live in a couple months. So thank you so much for being on. All right. Thanks, Zach. Have a great day. You too. Well, that brings us to the end of another fantastic episode of the Wisconsin Music Podcast, dedicated to amplifying Wisconsin music. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Chris Mara and gained valuable insight into the world of analog recording and music production. Before we go, a special shout-out to Fox City's Indie Radio for rebroadcasting our episodes every Thursday at 7 p.m. and Sundays at 3 p.m. If you want to stay updated on our latest episodes and discover more about the talented individuals shaping the music landscape, be sure to subscribe to the Wisconsin Music Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave us a review to let us know what you think. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.